0: Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Elliot Axelman. I'd like to do a short podcast and video just explaining the recent ridiculous claim that I saw come across my Facebook, of course, that George Floyd, the man who famously died a few months ago under the knee of police officer Derek Chauvin, died not from asphyxiation or trauma, neck compression, he died of a fentanyl overdose. Now I saw some very very sad pathetic uh, website. Um, I'm not going to mention their name. I'm not going to give them any more notoriety. But they posted a whole article, pretty much saying, in very very uh, poorly written, you know, text written by like a twelve year old, saying, "You see, the left said that police officer w- killed." Uh, there killed George Floyd, and there are protests, and, like, radical leftists are, like, totally liars because now a coroner, a medical examiner, said that he died of a fentanyl overdose, and all these riots are for nothing, and also you hate cops, and you are bad, and you dumb, me smart. That's pretty much how the article is written. Really, really bad. One of the worst I've had the misfortune of reading in a long time. So we do link to that article in, in our article. I'm going to post this as an article and a video and podcast as usual. The video will be embedded in the article the article will be in the description of this video so this claim really got to me because knowing medicine because I've been in emergency medicine as a paramedic and ENT before that for nine years now and I've, I've you know seen opioids opioids is one of the things that we, that we do and um, so I know a bit about breathing and opioids and death because I've worked on cardiac arrests and some successful brought back to life some cardiac arrests I terminated CBR and declare death. So I have a bit of experience, but also agreeing with me is everyone who knows medicine would agree with me. The claim that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose is so absurd, but again, it's one of those things where you have to know at least a bit about medicine to understand why it's an absurd claim. So a lot of people who already have the confirmation bias who want to see the officer be acquitted and found not guilty of all the crimes, He's charged with, with I think, second-degree murder. He's Yeah, he's charged with second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter, according to the Star Tribune of Minneapolis. Those are the charges in Wisconsin. Every state has different uh, forms. Some states will have first, second, and third-degree homicide. The first being murder, the third being manslaughter. Every state's different here. You know, he's charged with those three things, but he's not charged with first-degree murder. They're second-degree, third-degree, and, and uh, second-degree manslaughter. So no first degree murder right charge. Um, now based on this this ridiculous claim, and we'll get to the claim and where it originated from. Of course, it was one piece of information, and now it became oh, all the coroners in the world agree, all the medical examiners, pathologists, doctors agree he died of fentanyl. It was one email sent from one person to another that said the word fentanyl, and everyone went crazy. But we'll talk about that. But the attorney, as expected, the attorney for the cop, who's of course on the cop's side as a lawyer and fiduciary to him. He is, is seeking dismissal of the whole case. He's asking the judge to dismiss the entire case, all three charges, because of this, you know, apparent fentanyl causing the death. So, of course, as, as someone mentioned when I mentioned this, it's pretty standard procedure for the lawyer to just give it a shot. Why not throw a Hail Mary um, to start the game? You know, they do it sometimes to see if you can get a quick touchdown, an easy score. Um, so he's seeking dismissal of the case. Hopefully the, the judge doesn't grant it. But again, as we point out in every article, I don't know if this is city court, county court, or or state court. Some One of the documents said uh, state versus Chauvin, or Wisconsin versus Chauvin. So maybe it's state court, but regardless whether it's state, county, or city, whatever level it is, still the government agents of city, county, and state are all essentially co-workers, right? If you work for the same company with different departments or different levels, you're still co-workers. If you're a cop and a prosecutor, you really are essentially co-workers. They work hand-in-hand. It is what it is. No one disputes that cops and prosecutors work hand-in-hand. Same with judges the judges get evidence from prosecutors and cops to convict a criminal in criminal cases. So they really are essentially co-workers because so they have a bias, right? I, I would be less likely to convict or to want to punish a co-worker of mine that I'm friends with because we're co-workers and friends. So I want to mention that point. So the judge might dismiss all, all the charges you know, because of this. So anyway, on to the claim. The, the claim over here comes from an email seemingly sent from Amy Sweezy who's um one of the uh county attorney sorry the the assistant Hennepin County attorney Patrick Lofton and I met so this is one of the people who was involved in in some of the lab reports so I'm not sure who Amy is but she sent this to the the file for State versus Derek Chauvin, apparently. So, and it's an email saying that on May 31st, 2020, she met with the assistant county attorney, um, and they met with Dr. Andrew Baker of Microsoft Teams. And they were in... Uh, Dr. Baker and her recently received the final toxicology result from Mr. George Floyd's samples, which were analyzed by NMS Labs. And these were lab samples, not from the autopsy, but from blood work done at a hospital. It doesn't say uh, when exactly that blood work was done. It could have been done a while ago, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that this blood work was done on the day that he died. Because remember, when the cop, after the cop killed him, an ambulance came, and as they often do, they brought him to the hospital. He was probably in cardiac arrest. I think documents say he was in cardiac arrest by the time that the medics got to him. So they seemingly did CPR couldn't get him back to life, went to the ER, and the ER quickly pronounced him dead because he was dead and and, uh, not viable. But still, he was in the ER, meaning he was technically had an admission to the ER, so they they did some blood work, as they do for all serious cases. So that blood work is seemingly what they discuss here, so not necessarily an autopsy, um, and we'll get to that. In the blood work, and I have the document in this article that's seemingly a screenshot of his email, it says, A.B. walked us down the list of substances for which NMS Labs tested. Those values he highlighted were 4-A-N-P-P, a precursor, a metabolite, meaning um, one of the substances that, that something breaks down into, because blood breaks down every substance into a smaller substance or changes the substance. It's called a metabolite. So a precursor, a metabolite, of fentanyl, present in Mr. Floyd's blood. It doesn't say the level for that. Then it says methamphetamine, a... Uh, He described it as a very near the low end, so a very, very tiny amount of methamphetamine. Um, Then they say fentanyl-11, so fentanyl-11 is probably another metabolite of fentanyl. He said that's pretty high. This level of fentanyl can cause pulmonary edema. Mr. Floyd's lungs were two to three times their normal weight at autopsy. That is a fatal level of fentanyl under normal circumstances. So... They discuss a few things here. They discuss the fentanyl level, and it says that's pretty high. That's the quote from this guy from the lab, apparently. And then it it says Mr. Floyd's lungs, it discusses pulmonary edema, which is fluid in the lungs. Um, And it says his lungs were two to three times their normal weight at autopsy, uh, which would indicate that they had a lot of uh, fluid in them. So I, I don't know if the little bit I saw him on video, it didn't look like he had super severe pulmonary edema, because those with super severe pulmonary edema can't breathe. They breathe too fast. And too deep and they need oxygen um he was walking around uh seemingly like a, a mid-40s normal person relatively healthy walking out and about so he probably didn't have super severe pulmonary edema although this saying his lungs were filled with massive amounts of water um might indicate that um, so that's an interesting point and, and again i'm not a pulmonologist or a pathologist um, and it said under a normal circumstance that's a uh, fatal level of fentanyl again what a lot of people, including the pro-cop conservatives, were saying for the last few months is that he was a chronic fentanyl user and a stupid druggie. And if he was, we all know what tolerance means. It means he hasn't developed a tolerance to fentanyl, meaning what's a fatal level on this lab work. Because every, every lab, the way it works is it'll say the level and it'll say the reference range of what's the normal limits. And it'll tell you if it's high or low. It'll have an H or an L. So it makes it very easy for doctors to read lab reports nowadays, to be honest. Almost every lab does this. So, for instance, something you might be familiar with is uh, blood sugar. Blood sugar should be... 80 to 100 or 80 to 120 depending on the lab every lab has their own figures some might say uh 60 to 100 or, or 85 to, to uh 115 and it'll if the blood sugar is let's say 140 which is fairly high and not a big deal it'll say it'll have an h next to it and it'll say the normal would be 80 to 100 and this is 140 so it's, it makes it very easy so it probably said you know this was high he says it's a fatal level for non- normal circumstances for someone who's a chronic fentanyl user what's a fatal level to me If Floyd had it in the system and he was a fentanyl user, it could be nothing for him. It could be his baseline. It could be lower than what he usually has because his bloodstream usually probably has tons of fentanyl in it. So that's another point. Um, And then norfentanyl, which, yeah, another metabolite, uh, 5.6. I'm not sure if that's indicating. uh, I think norfentanyl 5.6 is just another metabolite. Uh, Fentanyl doesn't say the level of that. And then it says Mr. Floyd's urine was tested for four things and are redundant given his blood analysis. Um... A.B., who apparently is a doctor, said, quote, the only thing that matters is what's in his blood. And then the last line of this email in the screenshot says, A.B. said that if Mr. Floyd had been found dead in his home or anywhere else and there were no other contributing factors, he would conclude that it was an overdose death. So again, and this is a great example, because that's an interesting sentence and it can be read from two different angles. The pro-cop people who have confirmation bias are looking for evidence. Confirmation bias means you're looking for evidence to back up what you already have as your preconceived notion in your head. If you believe that you're a good person or great in bed, you're gonna look for evidence that backs up what your confirmation bias already is. If you believe that someone else is a bad person because they're of the opposite political party or you hate them because they have any other uh, race or religion, you're going to be looking for evidence against them. We see this very often with, with people with various immigrants and ethnicities and religions. Um, a Jew might look for bad in a Muslim, a Muslim might look for the bad in a Jew, and it's 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 very hard to be not biased. Everyone's biased, uh, at least to some extent, and at least in some scenarios, right? So this sentence can be read in in two different ways. It says, so that the people who are pro-cop are reading that sentence, and they're seeing if he had been found dead in his home and there were no other factors, it would be called an overdose death, meaning he had a fatal level, a lethal level of fentanyl in his blood. Oh my God, fentanyl killed him. That's how they read this. They read this as essentially synonymous, the same sentence at the same meaning as fentanyl killed him. The way I read it, as someone who you could say is neutral or is, is even anti-cop, I would say it literally says if there were no other contributing factors, it would be an overdose death. Just like if there were no other contributing factors and you found this man dead, you might say that his pulmonary edema killed him, or his uh, obesity killed him, or his diabetes killed him. Because if you had nothing else to go on, you'd have to assume that it was something that killed him but we do have something else to go on, and it was a very, very big something else. It was a meat on his neck, occluding his vasculature, probably his jugular vein over here, for eight minutes, and he died. Now, here, here's the, where, what we really have to get to in the important part. Is it possible, forget everything else, is it possible watching the video, and we've all seen the video, it's up on YouTube, YouTube still has some, some of them that have not been taken down. Watch the video, and once you understand fentanyl, if you're a doctor or if you're a layperson i'll explain what fentanyl is is it possible that he died of an opioid overdose like fentanyl it is not it would be like saying someone died like seeing someone get shot with an ar-15 like five times like daniel Schaefer was shot by the cop uh mitch Brailsford, like seeing someone die from the Air 15 and saying they died because they didn't have enough holes in them it's literally the opposite right if you see the video footage of them being shot you can't say they died of, you know, they died of having too much blood in their in their system after they bled out 10 liters. It, it's just literally backwards, right? So, and I'll explain why I say it's backwards. There's only one way, in general, at least acutely, there's one way opioids can kill. Fentanyl is an opioid. As we've heard for the last few years, it's one of the very powerful opioids. Now, powerful, potent, or powerful just means that it takes a lesser uh, mass, which is weight, of the drug to be lethal. That's all it means, but when we give it in medicine, we give a lesser dose. For instance, we give m- morphine, which is a similar opioid to fentanyl, we give that in milligrams, which is one thousandth of a gram. We give it one milligram of morphine. I might give a patient, if they're in a lot of pain, uh, five milligrams of morphine. Fentanyl is, is roughly 100 to 1,000 times more potent, so we give 100 to 1,000 times less of the mass. So we give one thousandth of one milligram is one microgram, and we'll give micrograms. We'll give 50 to 100 micrograms. So maybe around, a, a, it's 100 times more powerful than morphine, roughly. So if I were going to give a patient 5 milligrams morphine, I might give them 50 to 100 micrograms. So it's, it's a lot less. So to say it's, it's more dangerous or more, uh, you know, powerful than morphine, it's kind of true. But we also give a lesser dose, right? Okay. So that, that's fentanyl. There's only one way that it kills. If you take an overdose, if you have an overdose of any opioid—heroin from uh, IV drug use or anything—or or fentanyl because you take a pill and you overdose on pills by mistake or on purpose, there's one way it kills you, and this is what it looks like. I'll, I would act it out if I were a good actor. My brother's an actor. Maybe I'll ask him to act it out. If You take a pill. If you overdose, let's say you took, you know, a pill that was somehow uh, a gram of fentanyl, which is like 50,000 times too much. You're gonna die. This is what it would look like. You will feel euphoria first, you'll get high, like an opioid. Similar to heroin, you'll feel great, high, happy, right? Then maybe a few minutes later, maybe a few hours later, depending on if you have a full stomach or not, or, or your uh, the bioavailability, your metabolism and all that. A few minutes later, maybe 30 minutes later, an hour later, you'll start getting sleepy and you're still breathing normally. And and very important point, the normal breathing rate for an adult is around 12 to 20 breaths per minute. So that's every three to five seconds. So at baseline, without talking or exercising, the average healthy adult should breathe once every three to five seconds. Keep that in mind. So the respiratory rate, then, would be 12 to 20 every minute. So if you take an, if you have an overdose of opioids, you'll have euphoria. That's the first stage, right? Euphoria, you're high, everything's great. You will get sleepier. You might become confused. You'll be tired, lethargic, sleepy. That's stage two. Stage three will be you falling asleep. You can call it asleep, or sedated, or comatose. Uh, you're unconscious. You might still be rousable. If someone you know shakes you, you might wake up. Maybe that will be stage three. Stage four might be unrousable unconsciousness, where it's di- very difficult or impossible to wake you. Maybe that's stage four. You no, know, essentially, in my experience. And then stage five would be the if you took so much opioid, the next stage would be your brain. So your your brainstem, which controls your autonomic nervous system in regards to your heart and your lungs. It tells your heart to contract around 60 to 100 times a minute. And it tells your, not your lungs to breathe, it tells, because your lungs are really passive, they're just sponges, it tells your uh, diaphragm to move down and your, and your ribs to move out, to expand, to, you know, suck air in by increasing the, the volume in your chest. Sucks air in. So the breathing muscles. So your brainstem is told by so many opioid receptors being turned on in your brain If all those opioid receptors from an overdose are being turned on too much, too many of them, eventually, stage 5, after, remember those other stages, so I think we're in stage 5 now, your brainstem will be told by the opioid receptors being stimulated to slow your breathing rate. Your breathing rate will start slowing, so stage, I think we're in stage 6 now. Stage 6, your breathing rate will start slowing. Remember the 12 to 20? You might start breathing at 10 or 8, perhaps a minute. Which again, you're unconscious. You don't really know, and you're, it's all autonomic, meaning it's, it's done automatically without thinking. It's involuntary. You're unconscious, and you need to breathe around 12, 14 times a minute. If you're unconscious, you have a low metabolic O2 demand. You don't you don't need a lot of, of uh, oxygen, oxygen, or not creating a lot of CO2. You don't need to breathe a lot, but still, when you're breathing, you need to breathe 10, 12 times a minute at least. Once you start breathing, eight, six, five, four times a minute. Imagine not big breaths, only four normal size breaths small breaths for a minute. That's not enough. The two big issues with breathing too little is that your CO2, your, your carbon dioxide, the byproduct of metabolism in the cell, will will be uh, accumulating within your, your bloodstream and your whole body, which turns into carbonic acid, which makes you acidotic. And once you get too acidotic, you will also be unconscious and eventually die. So that's one problem. The second problem is, of course, you're not breathing in oxygen. So CO2 is not getting out, oxygen is not getting in. If you're breathing only four times a minute. And you're not getting enough oxygen. So your oxygen saturation will be low. And again, your brain usually will start breathing once your CO2 is high or your oxygen is low. But your brain is, is messed up now because you overdose on opioids. So now you're breathing at four, and now you're breathing at, at zero times a minute. You're totally, it's called apnea, you know, a total lack of breathing. You can also call it respiratory arrest. So this is this is the time to give Narcan. If you're gonna give Narcan, there's only one reason. It's when they're breathing too slow or not at all. So bradypnea apnea or hypoventilation or or apnea or total respiratory rest, and it's only a matter of time, maybe one, two, three minutes before the heart stops beating as well. But for now, the heart's beating, but it's just respiratory rest. There's no breathing. So th- this will be a great time to give Narcan, and that's the one real indication to give Narcan. Um, but again, the cops didn't do that because he didn't overdose on opioids. So I think we're in stage uh, six or seven now, maybe stage seven in in this example is is apnea, meaning he's not breathing anymore. And this would be depending on a lot of factors, probably at least 30, 60 minutes, maybe five hours, between, you know, probably between one and and a few hours of the whole process of starting to be unconscious. The breathing starts to slow and then totally slow more and more, and then eventually become apneic and and stop breathing totally. It would take hours of being unconscious um, for for this to happen, I believe, if it was an overdose of opioids. So that's how opioids kill. (laughs) Um, knowing what you now know about how long it takes for opioids to kill and what it looks like. It kills by the you know, right, high, confused, unconscious, breathing starts slowing, breathing slows more, super slow, apnea, hyperventilation, and then apnea. As these people admit, and where you have quotes from them, I have a lot of quotes that I grabbed, you know, from uh, Facebook, from people arguing with me, people who are not in medicine and assume they know more about opioids than I do. Um, they're educating me on opioids, saying, Listen, I googled fentanyl and it said one of the you know, opioids, I googled it and it says one of the uh, side effects of an overdose of opioids is difficulty breathing. And and But they don't realize that, that when they say difficulty breathing is a, a side effect of opioids, they don't mean difficulty breathing in the usual sense. Usually when you see difficulty breathing, which is a very general term for any issue breathing, too fast or too slow, usually when there's an issue breathing in medicine, it's the problem is they're breathing too fast, not too slow, right? It's very rare for someone to breathe too slow. It either indicates a tremendously uh, severe brain injury or opioid overdose. If someone's breathing too slow, it's generally assumed to be an opioid overdose, unless they have a tremendous you know, brain uh, injury or maybe a big brain tumor or, or other complicated drugs or other factors. Generally, if they're breathing too fat, too slow, it's opioids. A lot of things cause you to breathe too fast, like stress, anxiety, um, hyperventilation from anxiety. Uh, pulmonary edema, exertion, asthma, COPD, uh, heart attack, being scared, um, you know, being in a shock, any, any issue. Most, most issues cause, you know, 90% of breathing issues are breathing too fast, not too slow. In the video, you clearly see he was walking around, he was taken down by the cops, he's on the ground, he's breathing at or above the normal breathing rate, up until, like, the moment he dies. So, would you say he was unconscious for a long time and his breathing got slower and slower over the course of hours? No, that's obviously not what the video shows cannot be an opioid overdose. But yeah, these, these people who are pro-cop and they think they're lawyers, they're saying, yeah, he said he was complaining of difficulty breathing right before he died. He was saying, officer, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Why was he saying that? Number one, because he could breathe. His trachea was pretty open. And this is the windpipe where air goes in and out. The cop's knee was on his, his uh, right side of his neck. Now, he probably said he couldn't breathe for a few reasons. Number one, he had anxiety. He was having an anxiety attack or, you know, panic attack. He was apparently claustrophobic as well, and he didn't want to get in the car. So whenever you you can't breathe, you might say you can't breathe, and he was breathing too fast. He was having anxiety. But other than that, he also might have felt like his breathing was restricted a little bit because there was weight on his chest, and if you ever lie down and someone's on top of you, that's heavy, like a knee, and there were a few other cops on him, I think. He felt like he couldn't breathe, or not couldn't breathe, but he had something obstructing, restricting his his chest from expanding, so he couldn't breathe a lot. Also, the knee was here, and if you put a knee here, it's primarily on the side of the neck, but it presses on the trachea a bit. And it takes about 5% of uh, restricted flow of your trachea or even a few pounds of pressure for you to feel like you're being choked. <clears throat> like right now, I feel like I'm being choked a bit. And it's very scary. I've been choked in, in grappling. In BJJ, you've been you know, choked a lot. It's, it's very, you know, at first, before you get used to it, it's, it's very uh, unpleasant and unnerving to be choked. And you might say you can't breathe because that's what you say. You, you're not going to say my trachea feels a little bit of pressure on it. You're going to say, I can't breathe. That's just what you know, how people uh, verbalize that. So he probably felt like he couldn't breathe either because some pressure was on his trachea a bit or, you know, his chest couldn't expand fully. So he felt like he couldn't breathe. He couldn't really articulate that the primary issue was, you know, jugular venous backup. So, but people, it's so funny. People saying, oh, yeah, he said he couldn't breathe. And that's also a symptom of fentanyl. No, if someone dies, if, if someone's saying they can't breathe, like they're awake and alert and they're saying they can't breathe, the, you can 100% be certain it's not a fentanyl issue. Because when fentanyl is killing you, when you can't breathe, you're also unconscious and brain you know, you're breathing too slow. But again, I tried to explain this. That's why I'm making this video and writing this article. I tried to explain this very nicely on Facebook, just the basics of how you know, the mechanism of opioids and breathing, but people didn't want to hear it because they have confirmation bias. So this is not for those idiots. This is for people who are, are maybe neutral or just want to learn a bit about medicine or this case. Um, so how did he die? The next part of article, we, we address how he died. And like I alluded to before, It looks like from the video again, it's it's video not super close up and it's unclear and it's moving and shaking Um, From what it looks like is the cops knee is on the right side of his neck Um, And and before we get into this there are three kinds of chokes and and in grappling you go through this a little bit Because different kinds of chokes attack different parts of the neck the ways to choke someone they'll all kill you (laughs) But the different ways to choke someone are blocking the trachea. So it's a choke um, of just regular, you know, ventilatory Asphyxiation where you totally choke at the trachea and they can't breathe at all um, or, if there's an obstruction on the inside from a, a bolus blocking your trachea, then you can't breathe, air can't go in or out. Like I explained before, you can't get CO2 out, you can't get O2 in, and you eventually become acidotic and hypoxic and die. Um, that's the first way. The second way is a blood choke, and blood chokes are split into two different categories. You can block the jugular vein, which the jugular veins here and here bring blood back from the brain and skull, and they drain back into the heart and they go around it again. The carotid, so those can be blocked off, and then brain. And then blood won't get out from your skull and your skull will turn red so a lot of chokes like this you might see a person turn um darker because there's more blood there's increased amounts of blood in the the brain and face and skull the whole head Um, so they might turn red or blue a dark color if and that's the simplest kinds of chokes would be jugular vein on the outside or you know trachea or both Um, the other kind of choke would be a carotid artery choke the arteries are kind of protected your body from natural selection protects arteries, makes them more medial and more proximal and harder to get to. So to get to a carotid artery, as you feel for a pulse, you kind of have to get in here between the trachea and the little groove, um, between the trachea and your uh, side of your neck. I would tell the patient to stop talking because I could feel it properly. But this is the carotid artery. To get in there, you'd have to really get into there. Um, now the knee could have nestled in there, but more likely the knee was kind of just pressing on the jugular vein. The jugular vein is right here. You might be able to see my vein. Some people, you can see their veins, especially when they talk. The carotid artery You wouldn't really see but it's up in here if you do obstruct the artery somehow which has to be pretty intentional you can kind of go like this and press both carotid arteries maybe if you want but it would be tough then what it would do is it would block oxygenated nutrient-rich blood remember the red blood from your textbook from getting from your heart to your brain and then your brain and your your face would get less blood flow it might turn more pale instead of darker it would turn less dark so more pale and your brain would get no blood flow and then Again, you'd have you know a stroke and eventually die if they could really res- restrict flow of both your carotid arteries. Um, you know that could kill you too, maybe. Um, but in this case, I think it was the jugular vein. So his, if his jugular vein would have blocked here by the knee, which could have blocked ninety to one hundred percent of his jugular vein flow. And the left side was against the asphalt here, also being pressed by the knee here. So this is the asphalt, and this is the, and this is the knee. I'm already choking myself out. Then you know it would block here and here, so even though he didn't have a knee here, it was asphalt, this, the the street, could have blocked, because of all the pressure on his neck, could have blocked also, maybe 100% of his blood flow of the left jugular vein, which does the same thing, and empties from the, the brain from the same system, it could have been blocked 100%, or maybe 90 or 80%, but enough, both of them being blocked, almost entirely, enough to cause blood to get stuck in his brain, and blood backs up, and the problem is, he was in his 40s, and this is one of the scenarios in which, it actually is, generally beneficial to the older as you, so the blood is backing up in his brain. So the skull is, is a hard bone. It's confined. Um, again, babies, their, their skull, the sutures all haven't totally closed yet. So there might be a bit more room to expand and a bit more room for forgiveness. If they have a bleed in the brain for seniors, as you get older, um, once you're about 60, 70, 80 years old, your brain does shrink a little bit naturally. Um, and that also creates a little bit more hollow space or potential space. Meaning if there's bleed or backup of blood, there's a little more room for forgiveness. So if, if, someone, if two people have a bleed, the older person might actually do better if they're 80. It sounds weird, but if there's a big bleed, they have more room for blood to collect before it causes an issue. With someone like George Floyd, who I think was in his 40s, his brain probably had not shrunk yet, meaning when blood backs up and, the, and there's fluid and it starts expanding the vessels because now the pipes are, you know, to expand and dilated. And eventually as they get, you know, dilated out, they expand, um, The it becomes thinner, and and those tiny holes that are created by that, uh, plasma can leak out, and that causes cerebral edema um, of, of the cells, but also just from the vasculature into the third space, the interstitial space. So as that happens, there's very little room for it to go, and the pressure will be put on the brain. When the pressure on the brain, so now you're in the skull, the brain is here, the skull is here, there's no very little room between it because his brain has not shrunk yet because he's not that old. And... There's pressure, increased pressure on the brain, and this was eight minutes, his knee was on his, on his veins with little to no blood returning from his brain, no drainage. So what, what happened, I would presume, is the brain would, would herniate, it would squeeze through the point of least resistance, which at, in this scenario is the foramen magnum, which is the hole on the bottom of the skull that the spinal cord goes through. The spinal cord goes through your spinal column and into your skull via the foramen magnum, it's a, a big hole, And the spinal cord turns into the brain stem. And the brain stem is either the top of the spinal cord or the bottom part of the brain, whichever way you want to look at it. So the brain, the brain stem would kind of be crushed and squeezed through that small hole. And like I said with with the uh, previous example, your brain stem is your most uh, vital part. It's your vegetative state. It's what keeps you um, being a vegetable. If it's alive, you're a vegetable, but you're alive. It's what keeps your heart and your your, uh, breathing going. So that part was probably crushed, and he stopped breathing. His heart stopped, and he died. Um, so that's probably what happened, in my in my opinion, from the video. Um, again, is that visible or possible to see on autopsy? If there was some cranial herniation, I'm not sure. I'm not a pathologist. Um, now the patho- the two autopsies. Now next part of the article we address the autopsies because that was blood work from a hospital done at some point, which which you know is definitely valid if it's blood work done. Um, he was dead, so the blood work is, is not perfect because he was dead, and a lot of stuff happens to your blood. Um, like maybe more acidosis or other substances in your blood once you die, or other issues with distribution. Um, but still, you know, it might be valid. But the two autopsies are certainly valid. One was independent, and one was done by the, the county's medical examiner. They both found, the uh, independent autopsy found that he died of mechanical asphyxiation, meaning choking, and doesn't mention, you know, fentanyl. It says he died of mechanical asphyxiation. The government uh, autopsy, done by the county, I believe, said that Floyd died of, quote, cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual, meaning subdued, he's being subdued, comma, restraint, and neck compression. So again, it says, subdual, restraint, and neck compression is what killed him. Those are the two autopsies. They don't say fentanyl killed him, that would be ridiculous. The autopsies say, he died of, of choking, and the other one says of neck compression. So those are the, the two autopsies. Um, now, it looks like my computer's running out of space, but I'm gonna keep going. I've got my phone recording me too, so I got a backup. Now, What's really interesting is he's being charged with not first-degree murder. First-degree, in general, in most states and in Wisconsin, would be uh, a premeditated, willful, deliberate murder of someone. Um, that, that's, you know, a premeditated murder would be first-degree murder. And in general, what I was thinking initially, and I'm not a, a legal expert or lawyer, but what I was thinking initially was that it would not be appropriate to charge him with first-degree murder. It doesn't seem like it was premeditated. In fact, it might have been uh, heat of passion or heat of, of crime murder, which would be generally makes it lower to second-degree your manslaughter, um, or was just a regular, typical second-degree murder where you're in the moment, and you are malicious, but you're in the moment, but not um, uh, premeditated, though it is willful. So that would be second-degree murder, and he's charged with second-degree, it seems. Um, now, if I were a really ambitious prosecutor, I would charge him with uh, first-degree murder, and here's how I would do it. The two different ways I could go about proving or, or charging him and eventually convicting him in the court of law first-degree murder are either by saying that it was premeditated because contrary to what some people think premeditated doesn't mean you have to plan a murder for months in advance premeditated could mean that You had a time to think about it you adjusted your uh, weapon in this case his knee and Suck it even deeper into the neck and said I'm gonna kill him and kept going with it That's what premeditated means and uh, we have a, a quote here from uh, NOLA, which is a, a big, big legal website. Let me just scroll down the document and find this, and it has some case law as well. So it says, uh, "Quote from the site: Time alone doesn't determine whether a defendant premeditated and deliberated. All premeditation and deliberation require is the time it takes for to form the intent, ponder the crime, and then act. Defendants can premeditate and deliberate in a matter of minutes, as long as the thought process occurs before the act. There is no specific formula to determine whether a defendant." premeditated and deliberated before acting. Courts and juries will consider the circumstances in each case. Example, a defendant convicted, and this is a a real case that happened, a defendant convicted of first-degree murder for strangling a victim with a lamp cord. Plug, the cord. He premeditated his murder. The evidence showed that the defendant repositioned the cord around the victim's neck numerous times, each time giving him the opportunity to reflect on his actions. The defendant had also had time to consider his actions during a struggle with the victim prior to the strangulation, further proving premeditation. This is berube versus State. Um, and here, I link to it in the website as well. Um, this is a case in—it looks like another case in uh, Florida. So at least one case here that they give an example— a person, just in a matter of minutes, took someone you know, who fought, struggled, took a, a lamp cord wrapped around his neck, killed him. He was convicted of first-degree murder. Very interesting. It kind of seems like what the Scoff did, you know? Took him down, got angry at him. You're not complying, you're not complying, comply, got angry, so now he has angry, which is called motive in legal terms, and he remeditated and killed him. Now, even if that fails, there would be a second approach to convict him of first-degree murder, generally, in my opinion, if Wisconsin law is like other states. And this is what's known as the the felony murder doctrine. In Wisconsin, it's called the felony murder rule. What felony murder means, and it's generally another type of first-degree murder, is if you are in the commission of a felony, let's say arson, rape, uh, battery, beating someone up, you're committing a felony, you know, grand theft, and you kill someone during that, no matter whether you premeditated or not, just because you are in the process, in the commission of a felony... If someone gets killed, that is first-degree murder, and it's called by, by way of being felony murder because you're in the commission of a felony. Now, I looked at Wisconsin. They do have a felony murder rule, um, and it does tack on an extra 15 years to the sentence, meaning, you know, it essentially makes it into like a, a first-degree murder, I believe, um, or at least makes it more heinous. And guess what is a felony? Battery. Battery is the, the physical, you know, touching of someone um, if they don't want it. Especially if you want to cause them bodily harm, which obviously a knee on the neck choking someone does and did. So he was committing a felony, felony battery, which is a felony in Wisconsin state law where this occurred. And he killed him in the commission of a felony, making it essentially automatic first degree murder. In my opinion, I rest my case. That's what I would say if I were uh, the prosecutor. But again, the prosecutor won't shoot for a first degree um, because I'm sure they're friends because some prosecutors work together very often. He was a cop for, I think, 20 years. He was actually an FTO. He was a field training officer, so some example he showed his, his uh new cops that day. And what's interesting is is he's a field training officer, so he's clearly an example of a great cop. I think he's had other complaints against him too, but clearly a great cop, looks like a saint. Um he's had a lot of other issues in the past too, but he was actually the sixth cop on the scene. If you look at all the cars that came, if you see the whole long video, which I saw months ago, he's part of the, the third car, and every car generally has has uh, two cops, I think. So I counted six, and he was not the first on the scene. I think he was he was among the last few cops to come. So he was essentially fifth or sixth on scene. Generally, in EMS, and I think in police as well, the way it worked is the first on scene is in charge, and they do the paperwork, and they're in charge and everything, and the others kind of help them and take their direction to help if they need help with something else. That's how it, how it works in you know, most things, because it makes sense. The first on scene was there first. and knows what's going on. and He's in charge of the scene, and it's his scene, and it's his arrest if there's an arrest to be made. Um, but Chauvin was not first, yet he took over the scene and killed him, and he told the others to watch because he was the veteran. Does that mean he's evil? He's a schmuck. Does that mean it was premeditated? Maybe he heard that there was this guy in this area. The description he knew it was Floyd. They had a history. They did used to work at the same job. So that again could play into being a motive, um, or you know maybe more premeditated, more of a motive, and and leans a bit more towards first degree. But there are at least two ways that you could get him for first degree murder if you want to as well. Um, but that's just an interesting side note because you know you got to push back and then be more ambitious because people are saying he should he's totally innocent. And I have some screenshots here. I'm debating whether to post these screenshots, um, but I, I will read them to you. I have some incredible things people said. Let me blow this up real quick. Tiny text over here. This person said, um, this uh, cop supporter who doesn't really think, I believe him to be innocent of the fake murder charges. Floyd died of an overdose of fentanyl. Um, what else does he say? Someone else says, blah, 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 actions, however, his actions, so I haven't excused Chauvin's abusive actions, however, they had nothing to do with the criminal's death. Interesting, and we'll talk about terminology of criminal versus suspect, it's a very interesting video. Um, Then this, this person goes on to say, Elliot, I have seen lots of video from different angles, still photos taken from the videos, and now we have the coroner's report. I believe that your general disdain for police is clouding your judgment um he's mistaken it's not the coroner's report he got that link from the article reading the headline he didn't read the article he read the headline that said coroner says that the cause of death was fentanyl as we discussed technicality but it wasn't the coroner it was blood work done in a hospital way earlier not in the morgue um but whatever he probably read the headline not the article what you got is confirmation bias which is fine we're all guilty of it but those are just some interesting comments from uh from that screenshot a few other comments here. Let's see if we have other people. There are a few others saying that I and a few other medics on that post are stupid. Some people who have been flight medics for decades, since before these idiots were born. Um, paramedic, instructors, people who have worked 901 for a long, long time. Um, interesting comment. In the in the full video, Floyd is complaining that he cannot breathe. Far before the interaction with Chauvin. That's the quote from this guy. It's so sad because he thinks that can't... Difficulty breathing or complaining of... of having trouble breathing is a symptom of fentanyl overdose because the, and I've told him he's wrong. I'm not, you know, trying to dunk on him behind his back. I've told him he's wrong. And I've said, listen, if you're complaining of difficulty breathing, it's not fentanyl that's causing you difficulty breathing. It's something else. It could be panic attack, CHF could be anything, but if you're complaining of it verbally and you're awake and you're not in a coma, clearly it's like, it's like being awake and saying I'm in a coma. It just doesn't make sense. So he goes on. The fentanyl was affecting his lungs. Video also shows the fentanyl on his tongue. I didn't see that video. Floyd had methamphetamine in his system. Yes, the, some of the, one of the blood work allegedly said that he had a tiny bit of methamphetamine. He's um, and he had been smoking weed. oh gosh, ooh, the reefer. That's probably what killed him. He was very high when he attempted to pass counterfeit currency. That was the initial call to police was of someone uh, suspected of using uh, fake faker than the fake U.S. dollars we have, even faker money, like counterfeit fiat money. That's someone called police because they suspected maybe a $100 bill might have been fake. And the police came and they killed him. Um, he was holding a significant quantity of fentanyl on him. He stupidly did what druggies often do when they end up encountering police while holding. He swallowed the illegal drugs in his possession. Fentanyl is very deadly. Oh, thanks for educating me. I didn't know that. And easy to overdose on. So this guy's educating me. It's nice of him. Uh, the amount he swallowed could have easily killed three George Floyds. Very interesting. Uh, clearly, it didn't even kill one George Floyd because he was very tolerant to uh, fentanyl. Floyd was a dead man the moment he swallowed the fentanyl. There was There is a rescue drug for fentanyl. He's really educating me. Uh, it's great. Very nice. But the police would have had to have recognized that he was overdosing and would have, would of I think he means would have, had to have had it with them. However, the police just assumed that he was only another difficult intoxicated perp. Oh my God, so much wrong with that comment. I'll make an hour-long video some other day just uh, picking apart that comment. Whew! That was difficult to read. Um, yeah, so th- there you have it. I hope that this video uh, illustrates why the one thing we know about this death for certain, the most the most certain thing that I, I gleaned from this whole case is that he definitely did not die of fentanyl overdose. If, if you're saying you can't breathe, clearly it's not an opioid issue. Um... It's it's like it's like a person yelling and saying they're apneic, or saying their heart's not beating. If you're saying it, it can't be happening. Certain so, certain things, uh, you know, would pre- pre- prevent the other from you know both being possible. I think it's called a conundrum or, or something. So um, there you have it. We'll put this up as, as a podcast and a video on Facebook and YouTube and embed it in the article, and we'll publish the article hopefully tonight. Let me know what you think. As always, this is Elliot Axelman saying goodnight from the Liberty Block. Thank you very much for watching and listening and reading the article. Until next time.